0: Let's pray as we come to God's Word this evening. Our Father, we are thankful for this Lord's Day that You have given to us, that we get to begin the day in worship before You, and we get to close it in worship before You. We get to begin it with gathering together with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and then we get to close it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Truly, there is no greater fellowship than we enjoy with You, and we enjoy with one another by the union that we have in Christ and by the Spirit that indwells us. We pray this evening, even as we are together, we pray that it would be good for our souls, that we would say it was good to go to the house of the Lord to meet together, and that we would be prepared to go into our week to serve you as salt and light in the world around us. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your kindness to us. Even now, would you speak to us by the truth of your word, in Christ's name, amen. What I want you to do is flip open to First Peter, First Peter chapter 2. This evening, we're just going to look at one verse together, verse 17. I struggled this week to decide what in the world do you preach? with only one sermon, and a shortened sermon at that, about politics and identity. How do you address it? There are a lot of subjects, a lot of different things that we could dive into regarding politics and our identity in Christ. But I kept coming back to this one thing, as we're thinking about 2020 and a church and living in this era that we're living in, where politics has become vitriolic in. Ways that we haven't seen in our generations of late. And I kept coming back to this idea that you know it's our personal ethics as Christians in the midst of this political climate that matters more than anything else. And so I want to look at that this evening from first Peter chapter two, verse seventeen. I think it's a good foundation for all of our considerations about politics as Christians. First so Peter 217. Honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the Emperor. That's it. Four imperatives. Four incredibly short sentences, each with a subject, and each with an object. There's a verb. Do this, the object. I'd submit that these four short sentences are foundational for us doing what we should do in this political year. I'm far less concerned about who is elected during this election cycle than I am how we as the church act during this election cycle. Make me no mistake, I'm concerned about who gets elected. It really pales in comparison to how the church acts during this election cycle, because that matters for all of eternity. And so, these four imperatives matter an awful lot. The first sentence, honor everyone. Honor everyone. That everyone here is a word that is translated throughout the Scriptures as all or all people. It's used here to speak of the whole, the whole of mankind. And Peter starts very big, doesn't he? Saying, look, the duty of the Christian is to honor everyone, to have respect for everyone. That is, to be kind towards everyone, to be courteous towards everyone. Whether that is in person, whether that's in our private conversations, whether that is online in Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, we're to honor everyone. You can't help but think how different politics would be if it was this Christian ethic that was dominating all the interchanges and exchanges between people, if we all lived by this, honor everyone. Everyone. And as Christians, this is one of the ways that we can stand out, assault and light in this culture, be different than the world during this politically charged season, because my friends, we are not the world. Partisan politics is terrible at love, and we are to be masters of it. Partisan politics is terrible at love because parties are controlled by their coalitions and must center their agenda upon meeting their coalitions' desires, but we don't serve a coalition. We serve a God who is love. So we, of all people, can honor everyone. That doesn't mean we have to agree with everyone. For goodness sakes, we shouldn't agree with everyone. We are to honor everyone. Peter then instructs us onto a higher plane. He says, love the brotherhood. That takes it a step higher, doesn't it? This is an even greater obligation. It reminds us of Galatians 6 when Paul says there, so then as we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. That is those in the body of Christ. Those in the church have our love unlike anyone else. Because of what we even spoke about this morning, as Paul will say in Colossians 3, Christ is all and in all. It's an astounding thing as we discussed this morning that we are each united to Christ and we are filled with Christ by His Spirit. Each is a walking temple of the Spirit of God. And that means that though there may be differences between us, different issues that concern us, different agendas we would like to see pass, different politics, that none should be allowed to rise to such importance that they create a barrier between us. If my conviction for some issue clouds my love for you, then I'm worshiping my passion instead of the Christ who dwells in you no matter how much I rationalize it, that I'm fighting for justice or I'm fighting for truth or I'm fighting for mercy as Christ would have me, if it disrupts my love for you, then it is a passion that unseated Christ in my heart because Christ dwells in my brothers and sisters. Have love for the brethren. They will know you by your love for one another, Jesus said. John writes, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. J.C. Ryle commented, let us not note that our Lord does not name gifts or miracles or intellectual attainments as the evidence of discipleship, but love, the simple grace of love, a grace within reach of the poorest, lowliest believer as the evidence of discipleship. If politics is defined as the governance of an area, well, love is the politics of the Christian life. Love is to govern. The greatest effect that you and I can have in politics is shining forth truth in our local church. For those of us in this room, that's here at URC. It's our relationships here that that bleed out, and they begin to affect the culture around us. It's here where different political convictions and passions are submitted to love for one another. You want to see change and progress in our society, it begins in the pew, not in the voting booth. It doesn't mean that we ignore engaging with politics outside the church. No, I would argue that it actually emboldens it. But we cannot talk about politics in the broader sphere without examining our own lives and how they are being lived with those who are in our closest sphere. And for us, that's the church. Jonathan Lehman wrote a book that the staff is reading together this semester on politics, and he uh, he meddles here. I'm going to read you a portion of what he says. He uh, pastors, works on staff at Capitol Hill Baptist Church right there in Washington, D.C., and he says, That he reminds Hill staffers and K Street lobbyists and military officers that real political action starts in the teaching ministry of our church and then flows outward from there. From our relationships with other members to our families, our workplaces, and beyond. First be, then do. Don't tell me you're interested in politics if you're not pursuing a just, righteous, peace producing life with everyone in your immediate circles. Paul asked the Jews of his day, you who preach against stealing, do you steal? Romans 2.21. And then he says this, and as we talked about this as a staff this week, we felt our own selves pricked. He says, I've got a few questions of my own. You who call for immigration reform, do you practice hospitality with visitors to your church who are ethnically or nationally different from you? You who vote for family values, do you honor your parents and love your spouse self-sacrificially? You who speak against abortion, do you also embrace and assist the single mothers in your church? Do you encourage adoption? Do you prioritize your own children over financial comfort? You who talk about welfare reform, do you give to the needy in your congregation? You who proclaim that all lives matter, do all your friends look like you? You who lament structural injustices, do you work against them in your own congregation? Do you rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep? You who fight for traditional marriage, do you love your wife, cherishing her as you would your own body and washing her with the water of the word? You who are concerned about the economy and the job market, do you obey your boss with a sincere heart, not as a people pleaser, but as you would obey Christ? Do You who care about corporate tax rates, do you treat your employees fairly? Do you threaten them, forgetting that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him? Finally, as you share your opinions about all these issues on social media, do you gladly share the Lord's Supper with the church member who disagrees? Do you pray for his or her spiritual good? All politics is local, said former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Tip O'Neill. He spoke better than he knew. That's right. It's local. It's local here in the church. It's local in our community. We seek to live out justice and righteousness and love and truth with one another. That is the greatest political action and vote that you can cast. Fear God is the third imperative of the sentence. Fear God. And this leads us back to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment provides the baseline for all our arguments about theology and politics. It's, it's inescapable. One theologian stated this way, he said, The issue for God's people is characteristically wrong God and not no God. And we could take it a step further and say that usually the issue for all people is wrong God and not no God. There are few true atheists in this world. Now many people are practical atheists during seasons. They act as if there is no God for some season of their life. But most are not atheists. The issue is that they're worshiping another God. And when we go to the ballot box, we take our gods in with us. Our worldview, which is informed by what we worship, is the controlling influence upon what we advocate for and what we vote for. It's necessarily so. Religion is always behind politics. As Lehman said, every government is a deeply religious battleground of God's. No one separates their politics and religion, not the Christian, not the agnostic, not the secular progressive. It's impossible. And that's why it should not surprise us that politics has become more vitriolic. Because as people wander away from their churches and as they wander away from organized religion, it's their political heartbeat that rules Gods demand perfect obedience and they demand conformity. And this is a battle of gods. As Christians, I want you to think about the context of the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's it's redemptive and it is political at the same time. So the preface of the Ten Commandments, when God, before He even gives them the Ten Commandments, He reminds them that He has saved them from bondage in the house of slavery in Egypt, that He set them free from the dominion of Egypt, and that now, because they are His people, now they are to do these things. That is, He will not allow them, and He will not afford them the foolishness of attaching themselves to some kind of lesser deities. He is their ruler. He's their governor. He is their God. And so, He enters into a covenant with them, a a type of contract. And Old Testament scholars will say you that tell you that the closest thing to this we see it in in ancient Near East history is that suzerain vassal treaty. He is entering into a suzerain vassal treaty with his people, a contract with them whereby he is ruling over them. He's governing them. The relationship is political, even as it is redemptive. So the first commandment is enforcing upon the people of God that God's rule, His politics, if you will, supersedes all other affiliations and interests. It's a matter of worship. You shall have no other gods before me. I govern you. You're mine. You can't have any other gods before me. You can't have any other gods besides me. You you can't have split affections here. I must have all of you. There cannot be multiple claims upon our worldview. There can't be multiple claims upon our affections, upon our obedience. His is an all-controlling, all controlling, all. Demanding influence. And this is why Christians were often killed in the first century by the Romans. It was not their devotion to God. But it was their devotion to God exclusively that got them killed. A fascinating fact about the early centuries of Christianity is that Christians were called atheists. Did you know that? They were the atheists of the day. They were put to death because they were atheists. And why were they called atheists? Because they wouldn't bow to all the gods. They would only bow to one. So there's only one that rules us. They wouldn't fear the gods. They would only fear the one true God. And here's the truth, both from the right and from the left, there are always cultural pressures for you and I to conform and to worship other gods. They demand it. Don't mistake the political discussions in our society as simply politics having nothing to do with religion. No, all our politics is shaped and motivated and ruled by our religion. Everyone is worshiping something and that shows itself at the ballot box and in what we advocate for. So you and I have to think. You have to be thinking Christians. You have to be praying Christians as you approach your politics. If your Christianity doesn't affect your politics, then most likely the rest of your life isn't governed by your faith either. But what happens here politically is not ultimately our concern. Countries will come and go. So whatever happens in 2020, it doesn't undo the church. It doesn't undo us. It shouldn't undo you. It doesn't undo me. I love America. I'm quite patriotic. But My faith is to govern my patriotism, not my patriotism to govern my faith. And this I know, America will not last whereas Christ's kingdom will not end. And so it seems wise to labor according to its ethic and for its influence because it's lasting. Fear God above all else. That is to be the driving influence, not partisan politics for the Christian. Some have said, well, that makes for a kind of radicalized religion, and that's dangerous. It is when religious adherents say that there is only one God, that they deny the existence of other gods, and they demand the worship of this one true God, negating all other worldviews that violence and persecution occurs. This is the argument you will often hear today. You even hear it now when people go before Congress as judges or as Cabinet officials and they're questioned on their Christian faith because we wouldn't want your dogmatism and your Christian faith to come to bear upon your ruling in this land. So is the accusation. If you're dogmatic about your Christian faith, you'll do harm to others. Yet, all the while, acceptable religions, though they're not called that, are making demands and excluding others, primarily Christians. But this is where Christianity is different and it rises above all the rest. The second table of the law follows the first table of the law for the Christian. And the second table of the law of the Ten Commandments emphasizes our love for others. So we are to love our neighbor. We're to honor all, as Peter says here. We don't shy away from our commitment to this one God. We fear Him. That shapes our politics. That shapes our interaction with all political things. We stand for truth in our culture everywhere we can. And we do it with love for others. And that's a moral ethic. That no other worldview has out there. It doesn't have it, but the Christian faith does. Lastly, we honor the emperor. Understand, we may dislike a policy, we may dislike a platform, or even a politician. We surely should. A politician could even be an outspoken opponent of the church, and yet we're commanded to honor the emperor. Honor the emperor, Peter says. It's meant, its a good Christian, it's meant to remind you of the fifth commandment, that we are to honor our mother and our father, which then extrapolates out to honoring all those that are in authority over us. Why is it that we honor our mother and our father? Not because they just contributed the genes to our makeup that makes us who we are, but because they were instituted by God and authority over us. And so they're to be honored. And so it is with this government. Now, we don't worship So when we're commanded by law to do what is against our conscience, we must fear God, not the government, but we show honor painstakingly as much as we can to those that are in authority over us. He said, well, if Peter had to deal with what we have to deal with, or if he had the president that we did or that we do have, then surely he wouldn't have said this. You give honor to whom honor is due. Yes, that's Peter's point. Give honor to whom honor is due. And it's not tied to the person, but to the office. Paul says in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The president, we could take any other office, whichever one we are talking about, This president, or a former president, or a future president, is isn't simply president because they manipulated the political machinery. It's not because they lied to get their way into office. It's not because even they paid money under the table to interest groups or pulled the wool over people's eyes. They occupy that office because God gave them that office. And at times, that person has been a scoundrel. so of Nebuchadnezzar. It was true of Pharaoh. It was true of Cyrus. And you will yet note throughout history that God uses each of them for the good of His people for redemptive purposes. Our hope is not in the person on the throne or in the Oval Office, but the one who sits enthroned above them. And when Peter writes this, he knows what he speaks about. The emperor was Nero. Nero will become infamous. He will line the streets going into the city of Rome with Christians impaled on stakes that he will light on fire. Peter himself will become a martyr of the persecutions of Nero. And if Peter was to speak from heaven to you and I today, he would say, honor the emperor. You could literally translate this text right here in the context and say it's honor Nero. I tell you that's the obligation. We aren't enthralled with the person in high office. We also aren't fearful of them. But we are to be respectful. We may not celebrate them, but we can respect them. The person we may not respect, but God's establishment of them we can respect. But here's the other, I think, little treat about this verse. As you'll notice, Peter uses the same word regarding the king as he does all people. It's the same verb. It's a little chiasm, if you will, that kind of grammatical advice where you kind of have same things on the end and you have the two things in the middle that then kind of push them up and make them the most important. So you have here kind of A, B, C, A. And B and C, then rise up to honor everyone. Love the brothers, fear God, honor the emperor. And in that, we have a, a little subtle reminder that you know what? The emperor, he's actually on the same plane as everyone else. He's just one of all the rest of the number. this way, it's a little bit of a reminder to the Christians as these emperors thought of themselves as gods and Peter is kind of coming along and saying, look, he's just like everybody else. And so we could say the structure is much more like this. It is fear God. That dictates everything below. Then you love the brethren and then you have honor everyone and you have honor the emperor. That's the structure of the text. And so in our politics, this is what dictates. To fear God. Let that inform how I think about the political things in this climate. Let me bow before my God and pray to Him about these things. Let me never forsake loving the brethren in the midst of this political climate. And then as I labor for truth and for justice and righteousness and the world around me, let me do it with a love for everyone. Honoring everyone and honoring the emperor. It's a good rubric. These are the ethics we're to have as we enter this political season. There are so many other things we could have talked about tonight. Uh, Maybe we need to revisit some of these later in the year. We could talk about the difference between the church and individual Christians. We could talk about the spheres of the kingdom of Christ and the secular government. We could talk about how do you make decisions as you enter into that voting booth. But it's these four things have to inform yours and my ethic as we're out there. And as we're interacting with one another. And as we're interacting with our coworkers, And as we're standing upon truth and speaking for it in our culture. And as we're voting. And as we're watching the news. Fear God. Love the brethren. Honor everyone. Honor the emperor. Get those four things in place. You can come to the end of 2020. You can say, no matter what happens in this culture, I have honored the Lord. I've sought to honor my God in the midst of this. That's a good place to be. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we are thankful that truly there is one political reign that shall never be undone, that there is one authority that shall last for all time, and that is you seated throned above with the Son and the Spirit. we pray that we would not be children of our age, but we would be children of the age to come. We would find that fear of you shapes our interactions politically, shapes our interactions with one another, with the culture around us. It informs us when we do go into that voting booth. It informs how we speak of and about others. We pray that it would be this kingdom ethic which shines through us as a congregation, and which shines into this culture around us. Truly, there is a darkness. It seems only to grow darker. May we be children of the light. Exalting you, our Father in heaven, and sticking close to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, as we seek to love one another, and as we seek to be salt and light in the earth. In Christ's holy name we pray, amen.